The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Our God and Father in heaven, it is an honor that we can communicate to you who are in heaven, that you would allow us to enter into your throne room, as it were, and that we can come boldly before you without fear, without fear of retribution or reprisal for our sin. Lord, we thank you that in your mercy you have forgiven us, you have saved us, and that just as Pastor Jim was praying earlier, you are in the process of sanctifying us, making us new, changing us, causing us to be like your Son. God, we pray that today your word would be the agent to do that in our lives. And that through your word, the Holy Spirit would apply to us what we need to do and how we need to change. God, in particular, I pray today that we would not be a people of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. That's the book that we have begun going through. Last week we started was our initial sermon in the series. We'll continue on until we get through the book. But our desire is not to go too rapidly and rush through the book, but to go slow enough that the book will get through to us. Although our primary focus today is really only going to be on verses 6 and 7, we're going to actually pick up the reading in verse 3 in order to provide the necessary context to our passage. Last week, we highlighted the four overarching points that are in 2 Timothy, the four main themes that are just bursting forth from the pages. So watch for those themes to be present as we begin reading now in verse 3. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. Now, Paul is writing to his beloved friend and spiritual son with the goal of giving him spiritual fortitude. And in these two short sentences, there are six main ways that Paul explains what it looks like to persevere. If this whole book is about perseverance, here he gives him six ways to do that. And our outline this morning will simply follow those six points, which are faith, fire, fear, fortitude, affection, and a faithful mind. If you didn't catch that, don't worry. We'll come back to each one. We'll begin with point number one, faith. Verse six begins with three incredibly important words. They are transitional words for this reason. Any faithful reader must ask the question, what is he talking about? For what reason? So what is Paul grounding all of this on? What is the basis by which Paul can exhort Timothy to stop being fearful? And the answer is found in the prior sentence in verse 5. I am reminded of what? 
your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So Paul is grounding his admonition in the reality that Timothy is a saved man. Timothy's faith is sincere, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he expresses certainty that the faith that dwells in Timothy is genuine and saving. So right up front this morning, I want to make a clarifying remark. The promises and the appeals that are being made in these verses are not true of all people. If you are not in Christ, then you cannot lay claim to them. These promises are wonderful, they are uplifting, they are joy-giving, but they can only be applied to those who, like Timothy, have a genuine and sincere faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're not a Christian, these promises are not yours, but they can be. All can come to Christ, you must believe in his name, and you will be saved. The good news of the gospel is that if you repent and come to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and if you believe that he paid for them you will be redeemed. If you realize that you have nothing to give God that would make him accept you, you have no bargaining chip with the king of the universe, but that God has sent his own son to make us acceptable before him, then you will be saved. If you believe that Jesus took your sin on his shoulders and he bore it in his body on the cross as he was made to suffer in our place, then you will be saved. So if you're not a believer when you walked in those doors, I pray to the Lord that you will be when you walk out. I pray by the grace of God that he will be merciful and kind. Come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. So come and find rest for your soul. This is what had occurred in the life of Timothy. He had been saved by the grace of God. However, by the way that Paul speaks to him, it seems likely that the fire that was in him that once burned bright and hot had possibly begun to dim a little bit which brings us to our point number two fire look again to verse six for this reason i remind you to fan into flame the gift of god which is in you if you've been a christian for several years then you know and you've probably personally experienced the drift that Paul is warning against. You've probably had this happen or seen it happen many times. When someone first comes to know Jesus, you know what it's like. It's like a bull in a china shop. It's like they are filled with passion and zeal and vigor and they want to tell everybody and they are out there and they're shaking the trees trying to find someone who will listen to them about who Jesus is and rejoice in the God who saved them. They usually know very little, but they say very much. But as time goes on, that fire, that zeal that's in them dims. It dies down and that passion seems to fade. And the focus on Christ gets clouded by all the cares of this world. Paul is pleading here with Timothy to understand that that fire does not have to die. Fan the flames, Timothy. Some translations, if you're holding a different version, might say kindle into flame. You know what kindling is, where you go get a bunch of little sticks and you throw it on the fire to keep it hot, keep it burning through the night. This verb that is used here is an active infinitive verb, which you don't need to remember that or no grammar. All it really means is this. It is not a one-time command. He is not saying, Timothy, 
just do this one thing and then stop. It is an ongoing, it is an infinitive, it continues. And so what he is telling him simply means, and by extension he's telling us, always be fanning into flame your faith. Now this is another way to say persevere. So this whole book is about perseverance. How do you do that? In part, you do that by fanning into flame the faith that is in you. In other words, Paul is telling us, don't merely be a dim candle in the darkness, but we have a calling to burn brightly for Jesus. So at this point, Paul is starting a thread that is going to carry itself out through the rest of this chapter and chapter 2. There are two kinds of saved people. Here we are not talking about unbelievers, but genuinely saved people. There are two categories. There are those who are faithful and healthy and strong, committed and approved workers. Those are categories he lists over the next two chapters. And on the other hand, he speaks of people who are weak and lazy and fearful, unprepared and unfocused. This entire book is calling us to be in that first category and not in the second So how is the fire that's in you? If you were in Christ, what is that fire like that once burned bright? Is that flame still burning brightly? Or have you noticed that it is dimming and that your zeal is lessening? So I'm calling each of you who are in the faith to fan that flame, kindle that fire. So as unusual as this might seem, I'm actually going to do something that I never do. I'm going to stop right here in the middle of the sermon and I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for those who feel as though the fire might be dimming. Let's ask the Lord right now for zeal. Lord, I ask for those who are currently dim in their faith. God, I pray for your grace that it would cause the fire to burn brightly in them once again. God, I pray that you would fill us with with fervor and with zeal. I ask this for myself also, that we as a body and as individual believers might carry the banner of Christ high in this place. God, please give us a passion for your word and for your people. Give us an eagerness to spend time in prayer. Give us a spiritual energy and an enthusiasm that exceeds wherever we are right now. Lord, I pray that you would help us, help us to daily fan that flame so that we might shine as lights in this world. God, I pray that this would never be viewed by any of us as a one-time action or activity or a -a once-a-week event where we go to church and just get riled up in our souls, but this would be a daily action of fanning into flame what you have given to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now, please look back now at your copy of the scriptures, and we're going to move to point number three which is fear. Verse 7. For God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. Now here we get the root of the admonition to Timothy. Here we get down to the basis of what is he saying. Do not be afraid, Timothy. Do not have fear. Now fear is one of the most common experiences that humans have. We share it. We all have fear of something. Ashley, my wife, uh, she's afraid of very few things, but she is afraid of spiders. Not as much as she used to be. She used to be much more so. Not terribly, but occasionally she'll find one and she doesn't want to kill it. So she'll ask me to kill it. And my response, I think for the last two years has probably been the exact same every time. I always say the same thing. Ashley, there's no such thing as spiders. And she'll respond to me and she'll say, I'm not a child. You can't treat, you can't tell me that. I'm not, I'm not a child. 
Now, of course, I don't mind spiders that we find around our house. They're not that that scary to me. But I do have a personal policy that I abide by, which is if I can see the hair on a spider from five feet away, I avoid it. And then I'm, I'm okay admitting that I get a shiver up my spine from such a thing. When Americans were polled a few years ago, the number one fear that they mentioned was public speaking. And the second greatest fear that they mentioned was death. So Jerry Seinfeld famously noted that people would rather be in the casket than be the guy giving the eulogy. Now, we could probably make a pretty long list of all the fears of the people that are in this room. We could figure out what all of our phobias are and list them together, and that would make a pretty big book. But Paul is not making a broad, all-encompassing statement here. He is not telling people who have a fear of heights, you know what you need to do? You need to have the ability to go out there and walk a tightrope across the Niagara Falls. He is not speaking to this kind of fear specifically. The fear that Paul is referring to has to be placed in its proper context. We have to see what in the world is he actually talking about. In this place, in the context of the book of 2 Timothy, Paul is exhorting Timothy not to be afraid to persevere in his faith, doctrine, good works, and suffering. In this book, he's going to encourage him to stand firm in the midst of false teachers, to which he could be very timid and afraid. He's going to... uh, Tell him to not be afraid in the midst of division within the church or sin that comes against him. Not to fear standing against rival factions. He's going to tell him not to fear the violent Roman government. He's going to speak to him and try to steal up his backbone and say, don't be afraid of those things, Timothy. So in order to show you this point from scripture, allow me to give you a sneak peek of what's coming up a little bit later in the book of 2 Timothy by jumping ahead now to verse 8. If your Bibles are open, look at these verses with me. This is the very next sentence that Paul is going to utter. It is a continuation of the same thought that he is giving. He says in verse 8, Therefore, therefore, based upon what I'm telling you, do not have a spirit of fear. Based on this, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me as his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So, In this context, fear means being ashamed of Jesus and or being afraid to suffer for the sake of the gospel. That's the specific kind of fear that he is mentioning here. And perhaps you can relate to that. I know I can. I think that every believer can. There are times that I have been asked about my faith. Somebody throws a a, a fastball, fastball over the heart of the plate and they ask me specifically about what I believe. And immediately within me there wells up this fear. What are they going to think of me? And it fills me faster than my mouth can even speak. And you know that I can talk really fast. The apostle Peter felt this kind of fear. You remember he felt it when he was asked three times if he was one of Jesus' disciples. He was once asked in one of those occasions by a small servant girl. And he ends up cursing and saying, I never knew the man. He knew that fear. Paul knew this fear when he he expresses that and explains it to the Corinthian church that he had experienced such fear in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, when he says, And when I was with you, I was with you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. Now, I know people who have said that just means that he was nervous or he maybe had a physiological issue. No, he had fear. He, he's humbly admitting the fact that the greatest missionary that's ever lived went into the city fearful. And it is God, we see if we read through the book of Acts, it is God who strengthened him and who's with him and said, don't stop. 
Now, our fear never originates with God. It never starts from Him. He doesn't give us fear. Fear attempts to keep us from doing the will of God. And it is always displeasing to God when we entertain this kind of fear. The normal word used in the New Testament for fear is probably one that you'll recognize. That's the word phobos, which is the moon that surrounds Mars. It's the Greek god of fear, right? Phobos. It's just the word for fear, and that's what we normally see. But phobos can actually be used in a positive way in the scripture. Like, for example, it's used to explain the fear of the Lord, which is used not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New. That's the word phobos there. But the word that is used here is not the word phobos, which can occasionally have positive meaning, but is the word delia. Delia is always a negative word. There is never a connotation that could come from it that is a positive word. It could just as easily be translated cowardly. It is a negative statement about a person's character. Paul explains to Timothy, you have not been given the spirit of a coward. Now you'll notice here in your own Bible, The word spirit is lowercase. It is not capitalized. That is because the word is not referring to the Holy Spirit. Rather, this word could be interchangeably used with something like attitude. God has not given you the attitude of fear, something that is in you, dwelling in you, that is fearful. God has not given us that kind of an attitude. And here, the word us means believers. It goes back to that grounding in faith. This is a common experience for all Christians, which is really important. Please understand this. All of the things that we are seeing which contrast fear are available to you, and they are available to me. If you are saved, what he's talking about here in terms uh, of the positive side of these things, we have access to them and can develop them. They are ours in Christ Jesus. So if you're saved, God has gifted you. He has given you the indwelling Holy Spirit, and as we are going to see over the next three points, he has given you the exact opposite of a spirit of cowardice. Point number four, fortitude. Look at verse seven. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power. This might be, maybe I'm wrong, but it might be the most abused phrase in the book of 2 Timothy. Now, for many years now, the broader umbrella of evangelicals have taken this word to mean something very different than what the text is actually presenting here. And if I've heard it once, I've actually heard it like a thousand times. You probably know what I'm saying. Now, I'm not attempting to mock anyone specifically or point fingers or poke fun at anyone specifically, but you know what I'm talking about. So I'm just going to put on my evangelical umbrella man voice here. He says something like this. The word power here is the word dunamis. Have you heard this? You know what I'm talking about? It's the word dunamis in Greek. This means explosive power. Dunamis means dynamite. And that is the power that is in you. And God has not given you fear, but instead he's given you explosive power to get out of those situations. Like I said, I'm not trying to poke fun at anyone specifically, but you know what I'm talking about. This is bad Bible reading. This is bad theology. This is bad hermeneutics. This is, this is not the way we are supposed to read our Bible. Just because somebody in the 1800s takes a red firecracker that is filled with, with gunpowder and says, this is going to be named after the word dunamis does not mean that we take every, every time the word dunamis has ever been used and say that now they all mean explosive power. That is not how language works. Now, I used to hold to that position. I used to understand these verses in that way, but it's very important that we don't see them that way. 
You might think that I'm splitting hairs here, but this error has very serious implications to it. Because this interpretation is often used to argue that not having a spirit of fear means that you can overcome your trials by conquering spiritual foes. Usually there's a lot of demonic speaking about, about what's going on in the spiritual world around you involved with this. But in reality, that's not what Paul is speaking about at all in this verse. So let's get an idea of the meaning here from context. Remember, in this context, what does fear mean? He is saying fear means being ashamed of Christ or wavering in the face of suffering for the gospel. Therefore, I have opted to use the word fortitude here rather than power. He's not talking about a one-time explosion. If he's really using the word dynamite, that's a terrible thing because dynamite is once and done. It is just a little bit of smoke that's left over and then nothing. But that's not what the Spirit of God in us is like. That's not what we have in us. So that's what is not. Let's get an idea of what it is. He is not saying that we have the power to get out of trials or tribulations or persecutions. He is saying that we have the power, not saying we have the power to get out of bad days. It is not the power to get out of it, but the power to get through it. And that's a big difference. Because if you expect that the Christian life will have no hardship, you are going, you're in for a rude awakening. I mean, it is filled with trials. Christians are called to be a living sacrifice. Do you know what that looks like? As I was trying to come up with a good illustration in my mind for it, I couldn't think of anything that was, that was powerful or, or, or clever enough. The best thing I could possibly imagine to think of a living sacrifice, it's a sacrifice that will not die. It is on the altar and it just keeps breathing. And no matter how much blood comes from it, it continues to go on. It is like the Energizer Bunny bleeding out forever. It just keeps going and going and going. And that's our Christian life. It is to be a sustained act of taking up your cross daily and following Jesus. Or as Paul says in verse 8, joining him in his sufferings. He is not saying you have the power to get out of it, Timothy. You have the, the power to remain in it and be strong. But Jesus hasn't left us alone He's not saying you have to deal with this by yourself. I'm just going to let you figure it out. That would be terrible, wouldn't it? We have the Holy Spirit who gives us more power than anyone could ever exhaust. The Lord sustains us and leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. And we what? We fear no evil. For the Lord is with us. So we stand in power in the power of God, and you have the power to persevere because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. We move now to point number five, affection. Look again at verse seven. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love. Now, love is a broad and big word that could mean a lot of different things. So here is the big question. If Paul is saying you do not have a spirit of fear, but instead you have love, how are those two opposites? If I was going to ask the question, what is the opposite of fear? I would not probably list love in the top 100 things that is its opposite. So how does he pull that out? Or to put it another way, why would Paul juxtapose these two? Why would he say God did not give you a spirit of fear, but instead gave you love? The answer can be found succinctly put, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Right? 
That's what he's talking about here. It is the opposite of fear by the nature that it casts it out. It's like the darkness is filling this room. What does light have to do with darkness? Well, when you turn on the light switch, the darkness flees. It is gone. So what does this look like? What does it look like in our actual lives? Well, it looks like this. Fear is naturally self-focused. It is inwardly focused. For the believer, fear is a distrust that God is actually going to do what he has promised to do. So fear in that sense, or in the sense that Paul is using here, is always narcissistic. It is self-centered. It is self-seeking. That is the opposite of love. Love is other-focused. It is putting your needs behind the needs of others. It is setting your affection on someone in such a way that you are dedicated to doing what is good for them, even if it means doing something that is not good for you. In other words, love does not ask, but what will happen to me? Instead, it jumps into action on behalf of others. I think of Jim Elliott, who was called as a missionary in Ecuador. He was attempting to proclaim the, the gospel to the Aka Indians in the interior of the nation of Ecuador. And he knew before he went that he might not live through it. Before traveling to the mission field, he publicly prayed and said, I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. Before even one of the Aka Indians had heard the gospel proclaimed to them. He and three of his companions were killed with spears by the very people they were attempting to evangelize. And their lives were not wasted. Their lives were not wasted. Their deaths opened the door to the largest and most successful ministry efforts to indigenous tribes in South America to this day. Jim Elliott's supreme love for God gave him a sincere love for his fellow man. And that love propelled him past the fear of asking the question, what about the danger in that jungle? What about the snakes? And what about the, the spiders? What about the, the Amazon basin? What about all the parasites? What about the diseases? What about all the things that we don't know about? I mean, that's what a lot of people say. Fear is just, you know, fear of the unknown. What about all the stuff that we don't know about? What about the persecution from the people that will go tell? What if they hate it? What if they kill us? They knew these were really serious questions, but they said, because we love God and we want him to have the bride for which he died and because we love others and we don't want to see them suffer under the judgment of God, we will go to them even if it means that we die because perfect love casts out fear. If you love God, you will not be ashamed of him, which we're going to cover a lot more two weeks from today. But if you love God, and if you love others, then you're not going to be fearful of others when you speak to them about the gospel, or when they accuse you, or when they attack you, or when they persecute you. What can man do to you? So what do we do? We grow in love. Kindle your love for God through the reading of his word, through prayer, through meditation. Those are Sunday school answers, but do we do them? And to grow in love for others. And this is, if this is a difficulty for you, then ask the Lord to give you a deep and heartfelt and genuine love for that person who makes your life miserable to be a Christian, that person who mocks you endlessly and relentlessly, that family member who thinks you are completely an idiot for believing in Jesus Christ. For God has not given you a spirit of fear or cowardice or timidity, but one of love. So ask God for love to be bold before them, to live for Jesus openly and outwardly at all times. So now we come to point number six, which is a faithful mind. Second Timothy one, verse seven, once again, 
For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love. And in the ESV here it says self-control. That word in the ESV that it renders as self-control is a big Greek word that contains a very broad and rich meaning. Now, that is why you will find this word translated differently in so many other translations. Perhaps you're not holding an ESV translation in your hands, and you're looking at it saying, that doesn't say self-control. Well, here's why. Here's a selection of just a few different translations. As I was studying through it, I, I enjoy doing this when there's a particularly challenging word to find the range of words that it could be used as. Here, sometimes it's translated as discipline, sometimes self-discipline, self-control, like it is here in the ESV. Sometimes it's a sound mind. Sometimes it's instruction or sound judgment or good judgment or temperance or sobriety or, lastly, wise discretion, which might be my favorite of the, of the bunch. So when you find a word that has this many different variants in translation, you can usually assume that word is a very difficult word to translate. And there are a lot of reasons why a word can be dif difficult to translate from Greek into English. The reason this word is difficult is because the meaning is so big and it really takes about 10 words to describe what it means in English. This word is speaking to the discipline of mind to carefully examine whatever is taking place in your life in accordance to what you first know to be true about God. In Mark chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus refers back to one of the central commands of the Old Testament. He says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. I think the part of that command that is most often overlooked by Christians is your mind. Young and old, the command to love the Lord with all your mind is practically ignored. Now, your thoughts are the realist part of who you are. You may have learned to put a guard over your mouth. You may have disciplined your body so that you don't carry out sinful desires. But God is deeply concerned about what takes place in your brain. A recent brain study from UCLA estimates that every human being has about 70,000 unique thoughts each day. That's about 48 unique thoughts per minute that you are awake. And every one of those thoughts is an opportunity to either honor God or to sin against him. Your mind is naturally the easiest place to entertain sin. It is because it is a place of privacy. I could offer you a million dollars to guess what I'm thinking right now. I could bring you up on stage and put you here and say, I will give you a million dollars if you can tell me what I'm thinking. And I would think of some random obscure thing that no one in the universe would even think that I know about. And then you would guess incorrectly and you would say, well, what are you thinking? And I would say, I'm not going to tell you. And you'll never know. And you can never guess. You know why you can never guess? You can never see it because that's my mind. It is a place of privacy for me, but it's not private God knows exactly what's there. He knows what's happening between my ears. And that's a good thing. Because if I could see into your mind, or you could see into mine, or if your thoughts were to be played out on a television for everyone to see, then even your best friends would want nothing to do with you. Because you would be viewed as the most wicked and vile and detestable human being in the world. And yes, your thought life is the real you. Or as Solomon wrote in Proverbs 23, verse 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Your mind is like the control center of your body. That is why Jonathan Edwards said, the ideas and images in men's minds are the invisible powers that constantly govern them. 
No one commits these outward sins without first having committed them in his mind. If we want to grow in godliness, we must win the battle over sin on the thought level. This verse that we're looking at here in 2 Timothy is one of the most invasive commands in the entire New Testament because Paul is commanding that we, we take control not just of our mouths or our actions, but our brains. This is normal language for Paul. He speaks about this often. For example, 2 Corinthians 10.5, you know this. He speaks about taking every thought captive. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, he directs us to fill our thoughts with a very broad yet consistent set of things. Consider what he says. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. In short, your mind is the greatest battlefield for your sanctification. There's no competition. There is no arena where you are going to be more consistently and thoroughly tempted. And that arena, that battlefield of war should be littered with the corpses of your thoughts that you have put to death. Now, there will always be something rumbling around between your ears. And God gave you a great gift when he gave you your mind. Please don't despise that. But unfortunately, it has been infected with the disease of sin, just like the rest of us. But if you are in Christ, you have the mind of Christ. And you have the ability to honor him, not only in your actions, but also in your thoughts. So if you're daily meditating on the truth of the Lord, that he is with you, then there's no room for fears. Remember specifically here, he's saying in contrast to having fear, Timothy, have a sound mind, a mind that is faithful and grounded in the truth of who God is. See, it's really easy for us to become fearful when we let these things just roll around in there unchecked as we get an idea about what could be or what could happen, and we don't say, God, I recognize that you are in control of all things. So to be clear, these three affirmative realities are very true for every single believer. These promises of power and love and a sound mind, they're not only for apostles like Paul or just preachers like Timothy. If you are saved, you have the same access by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. So by that power that comes to us through the Holy Spirit and for the glory of God, let's now go into the world and live without fear as we live as lights, lifting high the banner of the cross. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, what a great truth it is that we have no reason to fear. Lord, you have given us your love. What could we fear? Lord, we have made peace with the only one in the universe that truly matters, the one who could judge us. Lord, you say in your word, do not fear the the one who can kill your body, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. God, I pray that you would help us to understand that if we are in Christ, we have been set free, and we have reason for freedom and to live joyfully and to live without fear. Lord, I pray that none of us would be ashamed of Jesus Christ. That when that fear of man or fear of our own reputations arises within our heart, you would give us a sound mind, the power to fight that. Lord, I pray that if there is any wavering in us when we are attacked by the world or by those who hate you or by those who reject you or by those who disagree with you, Lord, I pray that you would please allow us to stand firm. Give us strong faith. Help us to kindle into a strong flame that faith that is within us. So God, I pray that today 
for each person here that knows you, you will give us perseverance, resilience in the face of the world. And God, I pray for those here who don't know you. Just as we said at the beginning, Lord, I ask that that faith that Timothy had would dwell within them as well. Give them eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.